Section 21 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Clark. What is Property? An Enquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Chapter 5, Part 4, Psychological Exposition of the Idea of Justice. Characteristics of Communism and of Property Section 1 I ought not to conceal the fact that property and communism have been considered always the only possible forms of society. This deplorable error has been the life of property. The disadvantages of communism are so obvious that its critics never have needed to employ much eloquence to thoroughly disgust men with it. The irreparability of the injustice which it causes, the violence which it does to attractions and repulsions, the yoke of iron which it fastens upon the will, the moral torture to which it subjects the conscience, the debilitating effect which it has upon society, and, to sum it all up, the pious and stupid uniformity which it enforces upon the free, active, reasoning, unsubmissive personality of man, have shocked common sense and condemned communism by an irrevocable decree. The authorities and examples cited in its favor disprove it. The communistic republic of Plato involved slavery. That of Lycurgus employed helots, whose duty it was to produce for their masters, thus enabling the latter to devote themselves exclusively to athletic sports and to war. Even J. J. Rousseau, confounding communism and equality, has said somewhere that without slavery he did not think equality of conditions possible. The communities of the early church did not last the first century out, and soon degenerated into monasteries. In those of the Jesuits of Paraguay, the condition of the blacks is said by all travelers to be as miserable as that of slaves, and it is a fact that the good fathers were obliged to surround themselves with ditches and walls to prevent their new converts from escaping. The followers of Bebeuf, guided by a lofty horror of property rather than by any definite belief, were ruined by exaggeration of their principles. The St. Simonians, lumping communism and inequality, passed away like a masquerade. The greatest danger to which society is exposed today is that of another shipwreck on this rock. Singularly enough, systemic communism, the deliberate negation of property, is conceived under the direct influence of the proprietary prejudice, and property is the basis of all communistic theories. The members of a community, it is true, have no private property, but the community is proprietor, and proprietor not only of the goods, but of the persons and wills. In consequence of this principle of absolute property, labor, which should be only a condition imposed upon man by nature, becomes in all communities a human commandment, and therefore odious. Passive obedience, irreconcilable with a reflecting will, is strictly enforced. Fidelity to regulations, which are always defective, however wise they may be thought, allows of no complaint. Life, talent, and all the human faculties are the property of the state, which has the right to use them as it pleases for the common good. Private associations are sternly prohibited, in spite of the likes and dislikes of different natures, because to tolerate them would be to introduce small communities within the large one, and consequently private property. 
the strong work for the weak although this ought to be left to benevolence and not enforced advised or enjoined the industrious work for the lazy although this is unjust the clever work for the foolish although this is absurd and finally man casting aside his personality his spontaneity his genius and his affections humbly annihilates himself at the feet of the majestic and inflexible commune communism is inequality but not as property is property is the exploitation of the weak by the strong communism is the exploitation of the strong by the weak in property inequality of conditions is the result of force under whatever name it be disguised physical and mental force force of events chance fortune force of accumulated property etc in communism inequality springs from placing mediocrity on a level with excellence this damaging equation is repellent to the conscience and causes merit to complain for although it may be the duty of the strong to aid the weak they prefer to do it out of generosity they never will endure a comparison give them equal opportunities of labor and equal wages but never allow their jealousy to be awakened by mutual suspicion of unfaithfulness in the performance of the common task communism is oppression and slavery man is very willing to obey the law of duty serve his country and oblige his friends but he wishes to labor when he pleases where he pleases and as much as he pleases he wishes to dispose of his own time to be governed only by necessity to choose his friendships his recreation and his discipline to act from judgment not by command to sacrifice himself through selfishness not through servile obligation communism is essentially opposed to the free exercise of our faculties to our noblest desires to our deepest feelings any plan which could be devised for reconciling it with the demands of the individual reason and will would end only in changing the thing while preserving the name now if we are honest truth-seekers we shall avoid disputes about words thus communism violates the sovereignty of the conscience and equality the first by restricting spontaneity of mind and heart and freedom of thought and action the second by placing labor and laziness skill and stupidity and even vice and virtue on an equality in point of comfort for the rest if property is impossible on account of the desire to accumulate communism would soon become so through the desire to shirk section two property in its turn violates equality by the rights of exclusion and increase and freedom by despotism the former effect of property having been sufficiently developed in the last three chapters i will content myself here with establishing by a final comparison its perfect identity with robbery the latin words for robber are fur and elatro the former taken from the greek for or fero latin fero i carry away the latter from lathro i play the part of a brigand which is derived from litho latin leteo i conceal myself the greeks also have kleptis from klepto i filch whose radical consonants are the same as those of calypto i cover i conceal thus in these languages the idea of a robber is that of a man who conceals carries away or diverts in any manner whatever a thing which does not belong to him the hebrews expressed the same idea by the word ganab robber from the verb ganab which means to put away to turn aside lothi gnab decalogue eighth commandment thou shalt not steal that is thou shalt not hold back thou shalt not put away anything for thyself 
that is the act of a man who on entering into a society into which he agrees to bring all that he has secretly reserves a portion as did the celebrated disciple ananias the etymology of the french verb voler is still more significant voler or faire la vol from the latin vola palm of the hand means to take all the tricks in a game of ombre so that Levalure, the robber, is the capitalist who takes all, who gets the lion's share. Probably this verb voler had its origin in the professional slang of thieves, whence it has passed into common use, and consequently into the phraseology of the law. Robbery is committed in a variety of ways, which have been very cleverly distinguished and classified by legislators according to their heinousness or merit, to the end that some robbers may be honored while others are punished. We rob, one, by murder on the highway, two, alone or in a band, three, by breaking into buildings or scaling walls, four, by abstraction, five, by fraudulent bankruptcy, six, by forgery of the handwriting of public officials or private individuals, seven, by manufacture of counterfeit money. This species includes all robbers who practice their profession with no other aid than force and open fraud. Bandits, brigands, pirates, rovers, by land and sea, these names were gloried in by the ancient heroes who thought their profession as noble as it was lucrative. Nimrod, Theseus, Jason and his Argonauts, Jephthah, David, Cacus, Romulus, Clovis and all his Merovingian descendants, Robert Giscard, Tancred de Hauville, Bohemond, and most of the Norman heroes were brigands and robbers. The heroic character of the robber is expressed in this line from Horace in reference to Achilles. Jura neget sibi nata nihil non arrogate armis. Footnote. My right is my lance and my buckler, General de Brassard said, like Achilles. I get wine, gold, and women with my lance and my buckler. End of footnote. And by this sentence from the dying words of Jacob, Genesis 48, which the Jews apply to David and the Christians to their Christ, manus aegis contra omnes. In our day, the robber, the warrior of the ancients, is pursued with the utmost vigor. His profession in the language of the code entails ignominious and corporal penalties from imprisonment to the scaffold. A sad change in opinions here below. We rob, eight, by cheating, nine, by swindling, ten, by abuse of trust, eleven, by games and lotteries. This second species was encouraged by the laws of Lycurgus in order to sharpen the wits of the young. It is the kind practiced by Ulysses, Solon, and Sinon, by the ancient and modern Jews from Jacob down to Deutz, and by the Bohemians, the Arabs, and all savage tribes. Under Louis Thirteenth and Louis Fourteenth, it was not considered dishonorable to cheat at play. To do so was a part of the game, and many worthy people did not scruple to correct the caprice of fortune by dexterous jugglery. Today, and even in all countries, it is thought a mark of merit among peasants, merchants, and shopkeepers to know how to make a bargain, that is, to deceive one's man. This is so universally accepted that the cheated party takes no offense. It is known with what reluctance our government resolved upon the abolition of lotteries. It felt that it was dealing a stab thereby at property. The pickpocket, the blackleg, and the charlatan make a special use of their dexterity of hand, their subtlety of mind, the magic power of their eloquence, and their great fertility of invention. Sometimes they offer bait to cupidity. 
Therefore the penal code, which much prefers intelligence to muscular vigor, has made of the four varieties mentioned above a second category liable only to correctional, not to ignominious punishments. Let them now accuse the law of being materialistic and atheistic. We rob, twelve, by usury. This species of robbery, so odious and so severely punished since the publication of the gospel, is the connecting link between forbidden and authorized robbery. Owing to its ambiguous nature, it has given rise to a multitude of contradictions in the laws and in morals, contradictions which have been very cleverly turned to account by lawyers, financiers, and merchants. Thus the usurer who lends on mortgage at ten, twelve, and fifteen per cent is heavily fined when detected, while the banker who receives the same interest, not, it is true, upon a loan, but in the way of exchange or discount, that is, of sale, is protected by royal privilege. But the distinction between the banker and the usurer is a purely nominal one. Like the usurer who lends on property, real or personal, the banker lends on business paper. Like the usurer, he takes his interest in advance. Like the usurer, he can recover from the borrower if the property is destroyed, that is, if the note is not redeemed, a circumstance which makes him a money lender, not a money seller. But the banker lends for a short time only, while the usurer's loan may be for one, two, three, or more years. Now a difference in the duration of the loan, or form of the act, does not alter the nature of the transaction. As for the capitalists who invest their money either with the state or in commercial operations at three, four, and five percent, that is, who lend on usury at a little lower rate than the bankers and usurers, they are the flower of society, the cream of honesty. Moderation in robbery is the height of virtue. Footnote. It would be interesting and profitable to review the authors who have written on usury, or, to use the gentler expression which some prefer, lending at interest. The theologians always have opposed usury, but since they have admitted always the legitimacy of rent, and since rent is evidently identical with interest, they have lost themselves in a labyrinth of subtle distinctions, and have finally reached a pass where they do not know what to think of usury. The church, the teacher of morality, so jealous and so proud of the purity of her doctrine, has always been ignorant of the real nature of property and usury. She even has proclaimed through her pontiffs the most deplorable errors, non potest mutum, said Benedict the Fourteenth, locatione ulo pacto comprari. Rent, says Bossuet, is as far from usury as heaven is from the earth. How, on such a doctrine, condemn lending at interest? How justify the gospel which expressly forbids usury? The difficulty of theologians is a very serious one. Unable to refute the economical demonstrations which rightly assimilate interest to rent, they no longer dare to condemn interest, and they can say only that there must be such a thing as usury since the gospel forbids it. End of footnote. But what, then, is usury? Nothing is more amusing than to see these instructors of nations hesitate between the authority of the gospel, which, they say, never can have spoken in vain, and the authority of economical demonstrations. Nothing to my mind is more creditable to the gospel than this old infidelity of its pretended teachers. Salmasius, having assimilated interest to rent, was refuted by Grotius, Puffendorf, Barlamaqui, Wolf, and Henicus, and, what is more curious still, Salmasius admitted his error. Instead of inferring from this doctrine of Salmasius that all increases illegitimate and proceeding straight on to the demonstration of gospel equality, they arrive at just the opposite conclusion. 
namely that since everybody acknowledges that rent is permissible, if we allow that interest does not differ from rent, there is nothing left which can be called usury, and consequently that the commandment of Jesus Christ is an illusion and amounts to nothing which is an impious conclusion. If this memoir had appeared in the time of Bossuet, that great theologian would have proved by scripture the fathers, traditions, councils, and popes that property exists by divine right, while usury is an invention of the devil, and the heretical work would have been burned and the author imprisoned. We rob, 13, by farm rent, house rent, and leases of all kinds. The author of the Provincial Letters entertained the honest Christians of the 17th century at the expense of Escobar the Jesuit and the contract Mahatra. The contract Mahatra, said Escobar, is a contract by which goods are bought at a high price and on credit, to be again sold at the same moment to the same person, cash down and at a lower price. Escobar found a way to justify this kind of usury. Pascal and all the Jansenists laughed at him. But what would the satirical Pascal, the learned Nicolet, and the invincible Arnaud have said if Father Antoine Escobar de Valladolid had answered them thus? A lease is a contract by which real estate is bought at a high price and on credit to be sold again at the expiration of a certain time to the same person at a lower price. Only to simplify the transaction, the buyer is content to pay the difference between the first sale and the second. Either deny the identity of the lease and the contract Mohatra, and then I will annihilate you in a moment, or, if you admit the similarity, admit also the soundness of my doctrine. Otherwise you prescribe both interest and rent at one blow." In reply to this overwhelming argument of the Jesuit, the sire of Montaltre would have sounded the tocsin and would have shouted that society was in peril, that the Jesuits were sapping its very foundations. We rob, 14, by commerce, when the profit of the merchant exceeds his legitimate salary. Everybody knows the definition of commerce, the art of buying for three francs that which is worth six and of selling for six that which is worth three. Between commerce thus defined and a vol American, the only difference is the relative proportion of the values exchanged, in short, the amount of the profit. We rob, 15, by making profit on our product, by accepting sinecures and by exacting exorbitant wages. The farmer who sells a certain amount of corn to the consumer and who during the measurement thrusts his hand into the bushel and takes out a handful of grains, robs. The professor, whose lectures are paid for by the state, and who, through the intervention of a bookseller, sells them to the public a second time, robs. The sinecurist, who receives an enormous product in exchange for his vanity, robs. The functionary, the laborer, whatever he may be, who produces only one and gets paid four, one hundred, or one thousand, robs. The publisher of this book and I, its author, we rob by charging for it twice as much as it is worth. In recapitulation, Justice, after passing through the state of negative communism, called by the ancient poets the Age of Gold, commences as the right of the strongest. In a society which is trying to organize itself, inequality of faculties calls up the idea of merit. Equité suggests the plan of proportioning not only esteem, but also material comforts to personal merit. And since the highest and almost the only merit then recognized is physical strength, the strongest aristos, and consequently the best aristos, is entitled to the largest share, and if it is refused him, he very naturally takes it by force. From this to the assumption of the right of property in all things, it is but one step. 
such was justice in the heroic age preserved at least by tradition among the greeks and romans down to the last days of the republics plato in the gorgias introduces a character named callicles who spiritedly defends the right of the strongest which socrates the advocate of equality tonison seriously refutes it is related of the great pompey that he blushed easily and nevertheless these words once escaped his lips why should i respect the laws when i have arms in my hand this shows him to have been a man in whom the moral sense and ambition were struggling for the mastery and who sought to justify his violence by the motto of the hero and the brigand from the right of the strongest springs the exploitation of man by man or bondage usury or the tribute levied upon the conquered by the conqueror and the whole numerous family of taxes duties monarchical prerogatives house rents farm rents etc in one word property force was followed by artifice the second manifestation of justice which was detested by the ancient heroes who not excelling in that direction were heavy losers by it force was still employed but mental force instead of physical skill in deceiving an enemy by treacherous propositions seemed deserving of reward nevertheless the strong always prided themselves upon their honesty in those days oaths were observed and promises kept according to the letter rather than the spirit uti lingua non capacit ita jus esto as the tongue has spoken so must the right be says the law of the twelve tables artifice or rather perfidy was the main element in the politics of ancient rome among other examples vico cites the following also quoted by montesquieu the romans had guaranteed to the carthaginians the preservation of their goods and their city intentionally using the word civitas that is the society the state the carthaginians on the contrary understood them to mean the material city herbs and accordingly began to rebuild their walls they were immediately attacked on account of their violation of the treaty by the romans who acting upon the old heroic idea of right did not imagine that in taking advantage of an equivocation to surprise their enemies they were waging unjust war from artifice sprang the profits of manufacturers commerce and banking mercantile frauds and the pretensions which are honored with the beautiful names of talent and genius but which ought to be regarded as the last degree of knavery and deception and finally all sorts of social inequalities in those forms of robbery which are prohibited by law force and artifice are employed alone and undisguised in the authorized forms they conceal themselves within a useful product which they use as a tool to plunder their victim the direct use of violence and stratagem was early and universally condemned but no nation has yet got rid of that kind of robbery which acts through talent labor and possession which is the source of all the dilemmas of casuistry and the innumerable contradictions of jurisprudence the right of force and the right of artifice glorified by the rhapsodists in the poems of the iliad and the odyssey inspired the legislation of the greeks and the romans from which they passed into our morals and codes christianity has not changed at all the gospel should not be blamed because the priests as stupid as the legists have been unable either to expound or to understand it the ignorance of councils and popes upon all questions of morality is equal to that of the marketplace and the money changers and it is this utter ignorance of right justice and society which is killing the church and discrediting its teachings forever the infidelity of the roman church and other christian churches is flagrant all have disregarded the precept of jesus all have erred in moral and doctrinal points all are guilty of teaching false and absurd dogmas which lead straight to wickedness and murder let it ask pardon of god and men this church which called itself infallible 
and which has grown so corrupt in morals, let its reformed sisters humble themselves, and the people, undeceived but still religious and merciful, will begin to think. Footnote. I preach the gospel, I live the gospel, said the apostle, meaning thereby that he lived by his labor. The Catholic clergy prefer to live by property. The struggles in the communes of the Middle Ages between the priests and bishops and the large proprietors and seigneurs are famous. The papal excommunications fulminated in defense of ecclesiastical revenues are no less so. Even today the official organs of the Gallican clergy still maintain that the pay received by the clergy is not a salary, but an indemnity for goods of which they were once proprietors, and which were taken from them in 89 by the Third Estate. The clergy prefer to live by the right of increase, rather than by labor. End of footnote. One of the main causes of Ireland's poverty today is the immense revenues of the English clergy. So heretics and orthodox, Protestants and papists, cannot reproach each other. All have strayed from the path of justice. All have disobeyed the eighth commandment of the Decalogue, Thou shalt not steal. The development of right has followed the same order, in its various expressions, that property has in its forms. Everywhere we see justice driving robbery before it and confining it within narrower and narrower limits. Hitherto the victories of justice over injustice and of equality over inequality have been won by instinct and the simple force of things. But the final triumph of our social nature will be due to our reason, or else we shall fall back into feudal chaos. Either this inglorious height is reserved for our intelligence or this miserable depth for our baseness. The second effect of property is despotism. Now since despotism is inseparably connected with the idea of legitimate authority, in explaining the natural causes of the first, the principle of the second will appear. What is to be the form of government in the future? Here some of my young readers reply, Why, how do you ask such a question? You are a Republican. A Republican, yes, but that word specifies nothing. Res publica, that is, the public thing. Now whoever is interested in public affairs, no matter under what form of government, may call himself a Republican. Even kings are Republicans. Well, you are a Democrat. No. What? You would have a monarchy? No. A constitutionalist? God forbid. You are then an aristocrat? Not at all. You want a mixed government? Still less. What are you then? I am an anarchist. Oh, I understand you. You speak satirically. This is a hit at the government. By no means. I have just given you my serious and well-considered profession of faith. Although a firm friend of order, I am, in the full force of the term, an anarchist. Listen to me. In all species of sociable animals, the weakness of the young is the principle of their obedience to the old, who are strong, and from habit, which is a kind of conscience with them, the power remains with the oldest, although he finally becomes the weakest. Whenever the society is under the control of a chief, this chief is almost always the oldest of the troop. I say almost always because the established order may be disturbed by violent outbreaks. Then the authority passes to another, and, having been re-established by force, it is again maintained by habit. Wild horses go in herds. They have a chief who marches at their head, whom they confidently follow, and who gives the signal for flight or battle. The sheep which we have raised follows us, but it follows in company with the flock in the midst of which it was born. It regards man as the chief of its flock. Man is regarded by domestic animals as a member of their society. All that he has to do is to get himself accepted by them as an associate. He soon becomes their chief in consequence of his superior intelligence. He does not then change the natural condition of these animals, as Buffon has said. 
on the contrary he uses his natural condition to his own advantage in other words he finds sociable animals and renders them domestic by becoming their associate and chief thus the domesticity of animals is only a special condition a simple modification a definitive consequence of their sociability all domestic animals are by nature sociable animals florence summary of the observations of f cuvier sociable animals follow their chief by instinct but take notice of the fact which f cuvier omitted to state that the function of the chief is altogether one of intelligence the chief does not teach the others to associate to unite under his lead to reproduce their kind to take flight or to defend themselves concerning each of these particulars his subordinates are as well informed as he but it is the chief who by his accumulated experience provides against accidents he it is whose private intelligence supplements in difficult situations the general instinct he it is who deliberates decides and leads he it is in short whose enlightened prudence regulates the public routine for the greatest good of all man naturally a sociable being naturally follows a chief originally the chief is the father the patriarch the elder in other words the good and wise man whose functions consequently are exclusively of a reflective and intellectual nature the human race like all other races of sociable animals has its instincts its innate faculties its general ideas and its categories of sentiment and reason its chiefs legislators or kings have devised nothing supposed nothing imagined nothing they have only guided society by their accumulated experience always however in conformity with opinions and beliefs those philosophers who carrying into morals and into history their gloomy and factious whims affirm that the human race had originally neither chiefs nor kings know nothing of the nature of man royalty and absolute royalty is as truly and more truly than democracy a primitive form of government perceiving that in the remotest ages crowns and kingships were worn by heroes brigands and knight-errants they confound the two things royalty and despotism but royalty dates from the creation of man it existed in the age of negative communism ancient heroism and the despotism which it engendered commenced only with the first manifestation of the idea of justice that is with the reign of force as soon as the strongest in the comparison of merits was decided to be the best the oldest had to abandon his position and royalty became despotic the spontaneous instinctive and so to speak physiological origin of royalty gives it in the beginning a superhuman character the nations connected it with the gods from whom they said the first kings descended this notion was the origin of the divine genealogies of royal families the incarnations of gods and the messianic fables from it sprang the doctrine of divine right which is still championed by a few singular characters royalty was at first elective because at a time when man produced but little and possessed nothing property was too weak to establish the principle of heredity and secure to the son the throne of his father but as soon as fields were cleared and the cities built each function was like everything else appropriated and hereditary kingships and priesthoods were the result the principle of heredity was carried into even the most ordinary professions a circumstance which led to class distinctions pride of station and the abjection of the common people and by which confirms my assertion concerning the principle of patrimonial succession that is it is a method suggested by nature of filling vacancies in business and completing unfinished tasks from time to time ambition caused usurpers or supplanters of kings to start up and in consequence some were called kings by right or legitimate kings and others tyrants but we must not let these names deceive us there have been execrable kings and very tolerable tyrants 
royalty may always be good when it is the only possible form of government legitimate it is never neither heredity nor election nor universal suffrage nor the excellence of the sovereign nor the consecration of religion and of time can make royalty legitimate whatever form it takes monarchic oligarchic or democratic royalty or the government of man by man is illegitimate and absurd man in order to procure as speedily as possible the most thorough satisfaction of his wants seeks rule in the beginning this rule is to him living visible and tangible it is his father his master his king the more ignorant man is the more obedient he is and the more absolute is his confidence in his guide but it being a law of man's nature to conform to rule that is to discover it by his powers of reflection and reason man reasons upon the commands of his chiefs now such reasoning as that is a protest against authority a beginning of disobedience at the moment that man inquires into the motives which will govern the will of his sovereign at that moment man revolts if he obeys no longer because the king commands but because the king demonstrates the wisdom of his commands it may be said that henceforth he will recognize no authority and that he has become his own king unhappy he who shall dare to command him and shall offer as his authority only the vote of the majority for sooner or later the minority will become the majority and this impudent despot will be overthrown and all his laws annihilated in proportion as society becomes enlightened royal authority diminishes that is a fact to which all history bears witness at the birth of nations men reflect and reason in vain without methods without principles not knowing how to use their reason they cannot judge the justice of their conclusions when the authority of kings is immense no knowledge having been acquired with which to contradict it but little by little experience produces habits which develop into customs then the customs are formulated in maxims laid down as principles in short transformed into laws to which the king the living law has to bow there comes a time when customs and laws are so numerous that the will of the prince is so to speak entwined by the public will and that on taking the crown he is obliged to swear that he will govern in conformity with established customs and usages and that he is but the executive power of a society whose laws are made independently of him up to this point all is done instinctively and as it were unconsciously but we see where this movement must end by means of self-instruction and the acquisition of ideas man finally acquires the idea of science that is of a system of knowledge in harmony with the reality of things and inferred from observation he searches for the science or the system of inanimate bodies the system of organic bodies the system of the human mind and the system of the universe why should he not also search for the system of society but having reached this height he comprehends that political truth or the science of politics exists quite independently of the will of sovereigns the opinion of majorities and popular beliefs that kings ministers magistrates and nations as wills have no connection with the science and are worthy of no consideration he comprehends at the same time that if man is born a sociable being the authority of his father over him ceases on the day when his mind being formed and his education finished he becomes the associate of his father that his true chief and his king is the demonstrated truth that politics is a science not a stratagem and that the function of the legislator is reduced in the last analysis to the methodical search for truth thus in a given society the authority of man over man is inversely proportional to the stage of intellectual development which that society has reached and the probable duration of that authority can be calculated from the more or less general desire for a true government that is for a scientific government 
and just as the right of force and the right of artifice retreat before the steady advance of justice and must finally be extinguished in equality so the sovereignty of the will yields to the sovereignty of the reason and must at last be lost in scientific socialism property and royalty have been crumbling to pieces ever since the world began as man seeks justice in equality so society seeks order in anarchy footnote the meaning ordinarily attached to the word anarchy is absence of principle absence of rule consequently it has been regarded as synonymous with disorder End of footnote. anarchy the absence of a master of a sovereign such is the form of government to which we are every day approximating and which our accustomed habit of taking man for our rule and his will for law leads us to regard as the height of disorder and the expression of chaos the story is told that a citizen of paris in the seventeenth century having heard it said that in venice there was no king the good man could not recover from his astonishment and nearly died from laughter at the mere mention of so ridiculous a thing so strong is our prejudice as long as we live we want a chief or chiefs and at this very moment i hold in my hand a brochure whose author a zealous communist dreams like a second marat of the dictatorship the most advanced among us are those who wish the greatest possible number of sovereigns their most ardent wish is for the royalty of the national guard soon undoubtedly some one jealous of the citizen militia will say everybody is king but when he has spoken i will say in my turn nobody is king we are whether we will or no associated every question of domestic politics must be decided by departmental statistics every question of foreign politics is an affair of international statistics the science of government rightly belongs to one of the sections of the academy of sciences whose permanent secretary is necessarily prime minister and since every citizen may address a memoir to the academy every citizen is a legislator but as the opinion of no one is of any value until its truth has been proven no one can substitute his will for reason nobody is king all questions of legislation and politics are matters of science not of opinion the legislative power belongs only to the reason methodically recognized and demonstrated to attribute to any power whatever the right of veto or of sanction is the last degree of tyranny justice and legality are two things as independent of our approval as is mathematical truth to compel they need only to be known to be known they need only to be considered and studied what then is the nation if it is not the sovereign if it is not the source of the legislative power the nation is the guardian of the law the nation is the executive power every citizen may assert this is true that is just but his opinion controls no one but himself that the truth which he proclaims may become a law it must be recognized now what is it to recognize a law it is to verify a mathematical or a metaphysical calculation it is to repeat an experiment to observe a phenomenon to establish a fact only the nation has the right to say be it known and decreed i confess that this is an overturning of received ideas and that i seem to be attempting to revolutionize our political system but i beg the reader to consider that having begun with a paradox i must if i reason correctly meet with paradoxes at every step and must end with paradoxes for the rest i do not see how the liberty of citizens would be endangered by entrusting to their hands instead of the pen of the legislator the sword of the law the executive power belonging properly to the will cannot be confided to too many proxies that is the true sovereignty of the nation footnote if such ideas are ever forced into the minds of the people it will be by representative government and the tyranny of talkers 
once science thought and speech were characterized by the same expression to designate a thoughtful and a learned man they said a quick man to speak and powerful in discourse for a long time speech has been abstractly distinguished from science and reason gradually this abstraction is becoming realized as the logicians say in society so that we have today savants of many kinds who talk but little and talkers who are not even savants in the science of speech thus a philosopher is no longer a savant he is a talker legislators and poets were once profound and sublime characters now they are talkers a talker is a sonorous bell whom the least shock suffices to set in perpetual motion with the talker the flow of speech is always directly proportional to the poverty of thought talkers govern the world they stun us they bore us they worry us they suck our blood and laugh at us as for the savants they keep silence if they wish to say a word they are cut short let them write End of footnote. the proprietor the robber the hero the sovereign for all these titles are synonymous imposes his will as law and suffers neither contradiction nor control that is he pretends to be the legislative and the executive power at once accordingly the substitution of the scientific and true law for the royal will is accomplished only by a terrible struggle and this constant substitution is after property the most potent element in history the most prolific source of political disturbances examples are too numerous and too striking to require enumeration now property necessarily engenders despotism the government of caprice the reign of libidinous pleasure that is so clearly the essence of property that to be convinced of it one need but remember what it is and observe what happens around him property is the right to use and abuse if then government is economy if its object is production and consumption and the distribution of labor and products how is the government possible while property exists and if goods are property why should not the proprietors be kings and despotic kings kings in proportion to their facultes bonitaires if each proprietor is sovereign lord within the sphere of his property absolute king throughout his own domain how could a government of proprietors be anything but chaos and confusion end of section twenty one chapter five part four recording by chris clark